Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. So we're in Genesis 43 at the beginning of the Bible. Turn to the left. Um, it's kind of cool when we get into these last few chapters of Genesis what a note this book ends on. And with Joseph, we've got a lot more detailed narration around the story. Joseph was clearly the more uh, prolific writer when he wrote his told off. So the art of writing these with each generation is getting a little more elaborate. Uh, but I think God had a hand in that because he's really painting a picture for Messiah. So I want to really quick go through the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve fall. God promises them as a Messiah that will fix things. Humanity then falls, and Noah is promised salvation given the base, and given a basic law from God. Abraham gets pulled and set apart as humanity falls a second time. And Abraham gets set apart as, as the people of God, and God promises him that he'll bring a Messiah through him that will bless all the nations of the world. Then Isaac digs some wells. God is with him. And then Jacob wrestles with God. And we're still kind of in this story of Jacob because he's been wrestling with God his whole life. And he's been in this kind of back and forth. And we see Jacob's name change between Jacob and Israel all the time. And in this book, that's going to be relevant, that his name's going to change back and forth because he shows different characters. There's the, the character of the flesh and there's the character of the spirit. We still don't know, and it's been like 10 chapters but we still don't know from Genesis which of the 12 sons will be the line of the Messiah. There's still a mystery here, but we know that the first and second born son slaughtered an entire city. We know the third son um, had some issues with, with infidelity and, and doing some things. And when this narrative started, we know Judah's family just took off and left the rest of the brothers. And we know Judah's kind of been wrestling with some things because he tried to get them to not kill Joseph and just sell him instead. And his character has been changing throughout this story. It seems like the main character is Joseph, but there's going to be kind of a shift in the next couple chapters. But Joseph seems to be the one who's getting highlighted or set apart in this story. Um, and he's clearly the one that's writing this told off. Um but we've got this other pram the other problem is that this family that God had set apart amongst the sons they're all marrying and intermarrying with the Canaanite women and Joseph's married an Egyptian woman so you've got this kind of idea of God trying to set apart a people for Messiah and that problem's running into some errors so the book ends with kind of an epic finish and this reveal that Joseph's going to have with his brothers is really pretty interesting um the detail with which God works this out for the people of Israel is stunning. And it says that if God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that God works with that kind of detail in our life too. And there's so many instances where God is trying to do something wonderful in our life, but like Joseph had to spend 13 years as a slave and in a prison to figure out what God was going to do with his life. 
Um, and this is for us to read. This Bible isn't here for Joseph. It's here for us. And God put these stories in place so that we could read them and study them. And I just think that's the most amazing thing in the world. And I get really excited studying this stuff. So Genesis 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back and buy us a little food to catch people up. Remember, they had gone to Egypt once and they had got enough grain for the year. That must have been the first year of the famine because they're all out of food again. So they would have taken all that grain and eaten it up and now they're starving again. So that apparently means they had left Simeon to die in an Egyptian jail. So once again, these brothers aren't really taking care of each other. Um, so famine is the thing in verse one that's driving them, not a concern for their brother Simeon. So maybe they're just thinking, well, Simeon's the jerk that got us into all these troubles. Maybe he should pay his dues in that jail cell. Um, so later in the chapter, Joseph will say there's five more years of famine. So we know this is the second year of the famine. Um, and Jacob has likely been praying for this famine to break the whole time. So Jacob's experiencing this time when he's praying for relief for his herds to eat this grain. And um, God's not answering those prayers, apparently, but God is answering prayers um, behind the scenes. God's plans then are better than what Jacob could imagine. But Judah, verse 3, spoke, but Judah spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us, the man being Joseph, uh, the word the man is very similar to the Egyptian word for vizier, which would actually be the position. So I think that they wrote this in Hebrew lettering, but they, they were saying the vizier, but it translates in Hebrew as the man. Solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And if you send your brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Notice they switched his name to Israel. Why did you deal so wrongly with me as to tell the man whether or not you still had another brother? Why did you say that? Why did you give up that information? That seems like an odd thing to give up. A few things to notice. Notice that Judah has now stepped up to take the lead. He's speaking for the brothers, not the firstborn son. So something's happening with Judah. Um, it could have been anyone that would have said this, but it was Judah. Um, I think he's protective of Benjamin after Joseph was lost. So I think he's been wrestling with guilt for a long time, and we saw that in the last chapter. And I think at this point, Judah's like, I'm done letting the brothers try and try to lead or try to deal with the brothers. He's just speaking up on behalf of the brothers, and we'll see more of that in a second. Um, Israel has not been used since chapter 37. So something's going on with Jacob's heart, too, where the writer of the book of Genesis or the writer of this told off has been is now starting to use Israel's name. So something's going right at this point. And this questioning of Israel um, is really trying to figure out what happened. Um, Israel, oh, and the other piece is don't miss what's going on here. Um, the word Benjamin means, if you remember the translation of Benjamin, it means son of my right hand. So don't miss the idea that Israel, and I think this is why they're using Israel instead of Jacob, Israel, through Judah, is delivering Benjamin, son of my right hand, as a means of redemption for the sinful brother named Simeon, which means hearing, that's in jail via Joseph, whose name means Jehovah will finish. Did you get that? 
Israel, through Judah, is delivering the son of his right hand as a means of redemption for the sinful person in jail. And Jehovah is going to finish this. And I, when you see things like that, you realize that God is really writing a meta, an analogy or he's lacing in this message of Messiah with almost every story we've seen in the Old Testament. It also would explain why we're using Israel here instead of Jacob. Because it, it could have been any of the sons, not Judah. It could have been Jacob, not Israel. It could have been um, any of the ones that got put in the prison, but it's the, the one that meant hearing, because by hearing you shall know the, the word of God or you'll know the truth. If God puts that much work into making an analogy in his work of history, what wonders is Jesus preparing a place for us right now? Because he's been preparing a place for 2,000 years. What in the world is God up to when he's making us a place when he put this kind of detail and attention into the lives of humans back then? Verse 7, But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? In other words, he interrogated us and he got all this information out of us. We didn't try. He was good at asking questions. Um, Reuben offers up his kids before. This time Judah steps up and he does it a little differently and note the differences. Then Judah said to his, said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may not live and not die both we and you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. I'll be the price for him. And from, uh, from my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we've not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this, this second time. So in verse 10 where it says, for we have not lingered, that's what I was meaning by they spent a year letting Simeon sit in a jail cell. So they're, again, leaving behind a brother. And, and Judah, I'm sure, is kind of like, enough of this. Let's just get done with this. I would rather my life was forefoot than to deal with the guilt that he's been dealing with for a long time. So Judah is changing. The first time we saw Judah, he was trying to redirect his brothers. Then he tries to intervene, but he does it weakly and unsuccessfully. Then he goes off and has problems. Then he moves away from the family in chapter 38. And now he puts his life on his line for his brother. Not just for himself, but notice that it says, so that we may live. He's doing it on behalf of the whole family. John 15, 13 says, greater love is no man than this, that, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what we see Judah doing here. Judah's stepping up and offering himself as a sacrifice for his family and for Israel. Let me bear the blame forever. The word blame there is chata. It's the exact same word. In fact, 188 other times in the Bible, that word is not translated as blame. It's translated as the word sin. This is the first time we see it used in the Bible. So this is a first use moment. So he's basically saying, let me bear the sin forever. And so we have Judah stepping up and doing this. And we're starting to see that maybe this whole story was about Judah's character moving towards being the line of Messiah and not necessarily about Joseph. And I think it's really cool that Joseph writes it and shows his brother's change. So later, Judah's going to actually step up and do this. So what he's promising he's going to do, he's going to actually keep his promise. We see Judah becoming the man of God that I think he was meant to be. So at this point, I think Judah's just sick and tired of it. He's it's essentially saying enough. 
let me take care of it. If it goes wrong, it's on me. I'll take the blame. I'll take the sin. I'll do all of it. But he would rather go with that than go with another 20 years of guilt and shame. Verse 11, and their father said, that, and their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, the vizier, a little balm, a little honey, spices, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. So clearly Isaac's family was extremely wealthy. <laughs> clearly they have lots of wealth, but none of it feeds their sheep, which is the source of all their wealth. So they have all these luxuries, but you can't live on luxuries unless you really wanted to. Almonds can go a long way. Verse 12, take double money in your hand. We'll come back to that. And take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise and go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved... I am bereaved. Note the word if there. It's not like he's complaining or moaning. Um, this could be Jacob, remember, or Israel had showered Esau with a bunch of gifts in Genesis 33 to try to appease him. And he's using the same tactic here, but I think it's a little different here. This is a final test for Jacob. He's been wrestling with God his whole life. And at this point, he says, fine, take Benjamin If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. If I have to go through it, I'll go through it. And when he says, may God Almighty give you mercy, he's not using Elohim, which is like a general God, like our word for God. He's using uh, El Shaddai, which is the Jewish Jehovah God. There's no mistaking El Shaddai. That's the people of Abraham's family. Um, So he's not using an Israel term, but he's using the name of the God of Israel. The if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved is immediate state tense. It's an honest outcry a full yielding to God. No matter what happens, happens. And I'll deal with it and I'll take whatever God gives me. So he's letting go of Benjamin, which means he's putting his full trust in God and in Judah, the people of Israel. So I think that's kind of a cool thing. So Jacob's having his conclusion moment and has really found his place and his trust in God. And that's kind of been his problem his whole life is he hasn't been willing to say, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. He's always tried to avoid that kind of pain in his life. Verse 15, so the, men took the, so the men took that present and Benjamin and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. So Joseph's out of the picture. Simeon's in a jail cell. That means there's 10 people that are taking double money, which means there's 20 people. And the word for money in both of those instances is the exact same Hebrew word as for silver. So literally, and in different contexts, it means different things. So it's translated right. But they essentially took 20 units of silver is the same translation as 20 units of money. And that's exactly what was paid for Joseph when they sold him in chapter 37. So they took compensation. They took 20 units of silver. And I thought that was kind of cool. There's a symmetry to all of this. And Joseph's setting up a situation where they're essentially going to get the exact same choice that they made with Joseph when they left him in a well and sold him into slavery. They're going to get that choice with Benjamin. You can sell him into slavery and go back and tell your dad a lie, or you can step up and then we'll see what happens with Judah. Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready. 
I kind of imagine he was saying that really loud. And I know he's speaking Egyptian, but I think he would pause right after slaughter. Take these men to my house and slaughter an animal to make ready for food. <laughs> Just to scare his brothers a little bit, but I don't think Joseph was that Weasley. So, <laughs> for these men will dine with me at noon. And they did, man did, as Joseph ordered, and brought the men into Joseph's house. So Joseph being second in command in any leadership role in the ancient world, you would sit in a central place in the city and you'd have a line of people all day where all you do is take the next person in line. Next person in line. So he's sitting there doing his work, doing his thing, being a judge and making decisions. And then up scurry the Canaanite guys or the Hebrew guys. And he goes, oh, these men, I want you to take them over to my house and slaughter an animal. I'm going to have lunch with them. But he had to keep doing his job. So Joseph stays on, finishes out the morning of work and then comes back to for lunch. And lunch in these societies, even today, a Middle Eastern lunch is like two hours. It's a long break. In the heat of the day, you go back to the tents and you hang out. And in Egypt, it wouldn't have been tents. It would have been little uh, stucco houses kinds of things. So verse 18, now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money, which the one we returned in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he can make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. I think, we, and I said this last week too, they keep seeing blessings as curses. And I think that's really indicative of someone that's in a sinful state is they can't see a blessing for what it is. They can't be blessed because they're so consumed with guilt that there's a little part of them that thinks they deserve punishment because they do deserve punishment. There's a truth in that, but it blinds them to anything good that's going to happen. So the brothers are scared. They're trembling a little bit, going back to the house. They're thinking, oh, crap. It'd be akin to us visiting like the vice president of the United States. And the president says, I'll talk to you later. Take them back to my house. And and you're going, oh, what? Well, well, why? Why us? Like, we're just people in line. Oh, my goodness. So when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house. Confession's going to clear their conscience a little bit. And they confess what they think they had done wrong to the steward. So they say in verse 20, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks. And there, each man's money was in the mouth of a sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it back into our brought it back in our hand and we've brought down another money in our hands to buy food we do not know who put the money in our sacks but he said the steward said peace be with you do not be afraid your god and the god of your father that's a clue has given you you treasure in your sacks i had your money which is true he had the money and then he put it back in their sacks then he brought Simeon out to them. So they get Simeon out of jail and bring him back. Now you got 11 brothers all together in one place and regathered together. I think it's interesting that the steward recognizes your God and the God of your father. Um, the steward has clearly been told by Joseph that God loves this family, that there's something about this family and about Israel that's important and significant. And the steward clearly believes that this God is active and at work. In other words, Joseph's been discipling people. And I think he's built a whole household full of people that love the Lord God. And he has proved himself again and again with the Egyptian people. But 
you know, he's doing the first missionary work, essentially. Um, Joseph has apparently surrounded himself with other believers in this kind of world, and that would be really wise of Joseph to do so. Remember, every time Joseph's talked, he's put God into the conversation. It'd be hard to know Joseph and not know his God. So even if the steward doesn't believe, he at least knows what Joseph's line is on it. Um, I think it's interesting that they try to buy the favor of the steward and they try to talk about all this money. Um, and the steward essentially says, peace be with you, don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And this idea of trying to buy special treatment with money and we do that with God all the time. We think that we can buy favor with God, but it doesn't work that way because God doesn't need our money. It's all God's. He made all of it. Um, so the man brought the men into Joseph's house. The steward brought the brothers into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys food. And then he then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that he would that they would eat bread there. Um, notice that we're in a, a famine and the primary commodity is grain. So to eat bread in Joseph's house would have been quite the luxury during this era. Um, the brothers expected them to be seized as slaves and have everything taken from them. In Genesis 43, that's Genesis 43:18. That was the expectation. Remember, they thought they're going to be taken as slaves. Verse 26. And when Joseph came home. They brought him the present which was in their hand to the house and bowed down before him to the earth. So again, the brothers are all bowing down before Joseph. This is then the second time his dream has come true. And he also had two dreams, but the second dream, remember, had um, Jacob bowing down before him too. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? Remember, Benjamin would have been really young when Joseph was sold into slavery. So he's probably changed a little bit. He's grown and, you know, his face squared out, lost the baby fat, can't really pinch the cheeks anymore. And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste, and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and he wept there. I think Joseph's already shown us that he's a master of controlling his emotions. So the feeling of seeing your your full brother again had to be pretty amazing and overwhelming. Um, it seems like this is kind of wimpy Joseph, like he's running off in a corner. But we have no evidence anywhere else that this was a guy that was out of control emotionally. Um, he controls his emotions extremely well. Um, remember, he's been abandoned by these brothers. He thought that maybe if they killed him, they would have killed Benjamin too. That would have taken out both of Rachel's sons. That Benjamin was being favored by the father, just like Joseph was being favored. Um, Joseph's probably worried about it at that level too, because he realized they left Benjamin behind, which means he would have been back in the tents, uh, just like Joseph was, and just like Jacob was when he was a young man. So I think it's that when you see God doing a work, it softens your heart. And when we see miracles happen, when we see people's hearts change, when you hear somebody's testimony, it's really hard to not cry because you get overwhelmed because the Holy Spirit overwhelms the human spirit. And when that Holy Spirit's clearly at work, I think even the most controlled of people will start to break down and cry. And I think that's what's going on with Joseph here. He's just overwhelmed that this is all coming to be. 
And Joseph remembers the only one in this story that realizes that God's at work because he remembers the dream. He knows who the brothers are. And you can just see this moment where it's all kind of coming to fruition and coming together. Then he washed his face and came out and restrained himself and said, serve the bread. This is what you'd call an incidental fact or an incidental line that actually adds to the authenticity of the scriptures. Then he washed his face. Why would he wash his face? He just had tears all over to wipe them off. And, and I'm sorry, an incidental confirmatory detail. We know that in this area, era, all Egyptian leaders shaved almost their entire bodies and they wore heavy makeup on their face. And eye makeup, if he started to cry, would have ran all over his face just like it does today, probably more so. So he would have had to cry and take off the eyeliner. Also washing the face would have made him more recognizable to his brothers when he came back out. Um, so they set a place. They set him in a place by himself. So Joseph sits by himself, and them by themselves. All the brothers sit at another table, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that's an ab- abomination to the Egyptians. Um, this is interesting cultural sensitivity that Joseph added to his home. We also know from other sources, especially Roman sources, that Egyptians were, they thought anybody who wasn't Egyptian was dirty and you couldn't touch them. So it's a belief that some cultures still have in the Middle East even today, um, but they would have, there's no way Egyptians would have sat at a table with those folks. And I think it's interesting that Joseph separates himself with his brothers here. The only reason Joseph would have been able to marry an Egyptian, which would have been a huge honor, is because Pharaoh, who's a god, they believe, believed that Joseph came from God because of the dream interpretations. So when a god says, recognizes God's work in another person, then the only person who could have authorized that marriage would have been the Pharaoh. Otherwise, Egyptians came from the gods. Anybody else came from other lower life forms here on the earth, according to Egyptian religion. It's known from Herodotus that Egyptians abhorred anything that was foreign. They, they wouldn't eat the same food. They wouldn't take chicken off the same plate as someone else that ate. Um, they didn't import anything that they would eat or touch or consume with their bodies. So Egyptians uh, wouldn't even use utensils for eating if they'd been used by Greeks in the past. So there was complete separation of societies according to Egyptian belief. This segregation, though, is super important. God picked the Egyptians to prosper and then to have this situation because, remember, the Israelites are intermarrying with Canaanites. So clearly his chosen family is not following the rules. How do you keep them separate for 400 years so they can become a people unique to themselves? You stick them into the middle of the most segregated society ever in the history of the world. That's what you do. So God's setting this up, and we see these hints about Egyptian culture that's actually going to fit completely with what God's about to do. And you protect them because they're all scared of other nations coming in from other places. And you protect them by giving them one of the most powerful armies in the world to guard over them. The only problem that's going to exist is how do you get them out of the most powerful army in the world in the most controlling society in the world. And God's going to have to intervene to get them out of here. But first he has to get them in, but it's going to perfectly protect these people and that they can grow. Verse 33, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Of course they did. So Joseph sits them in order of their birth. 
and they're looking at each other and I'm sure they sit down and they're like, wait a second, how did he do this? And they're all grown men. So you wouldn't have been able to tell by looking at them. Um, the, one of the commentaries says that it's the chances of correctly identifying 11 brothers in order of birthright is one in 40 million. So Joseph's giving them hint after hint after hint, like the steward knows who their God is and know that their God loves their father. And he's asking about their dad and he asks about their little brother. Um, so we keep getting these kinds of things and then they sit him according to birthright and you'd think the brothers would catch on at some point, but they just can't believe it's so beyond the belief that this would be Joseph that they're dealing with that I, I, it just wouldn't occur to him. Then he took servings to them from, from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So Joseph's setting up the last test for these brothers. He gives, he took this, then he, Joseph, took the servings to them, the brothers, from before him, Joseph's table. So he eats at his table, and then he gets up from his table, and he goes and serves the brothers, a lot like Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And then he gives Benjamin five times as much food here. You need probably to fatten him up or something like that. So they drank, and they were merry with him. That's huge. So instead of being jealous about the extra portion, because they could have been like, who does he think he is giving Benjamin extra portions? They actually just drink and are merry. Like, they're not competing with each other anymore. The brothers have changed. There's something different here. So I think Joseph's trying to see if they've changed and if there's an actual change there. So the first test they had with Joseph, they utterly failed, and they're going to get put into the exact same test again and again and again. And one thought is sometimes in life we get that too. If we fail in a test where God's trying to change us and mold us, we somehow or another a year later find ourselves in the exact same situation. Different names, different faces, but here's the test one more time. So we must be doing something wrong with Shadow because we keep getting tested again and again and again. We have to try something different. Often in the exact same way. Something's going on. Chapter 43, verse 1. Oh, wait. I should have printed off 45. No, I just forgot to change the number at the top. (laughs) Chapter 44, verse 1. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. And as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. Joseph's doing the same thing here. He's, that silver cup is setting up another test. We'll see that in a second. And the question is, will the brothers sell out Benjamin? Where they sell out the other brother? And he got the extra portions, just like Joseph got extra treatment from, from Jacob. Um, and they've already left Simeon behind, who probably deserved a little time in jail. Um, that was a test for Simeon. God was working with him independently. Um, so they're going to be leaving with joy. They got their... Everything's full of sacks. Judah's going, because they got away with Simeon and Benjamin. They're coming home just like they told their dad. All 11 brothers are back. It's a good day. But when they'd gone out of the city, verse 4, and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, this being the cup? 
and with which he indeed practices divination, you've done evil in so doing. Okay, this does not mean Joseph practiced divination. Silver cups would have been used to either put wine or blood in and then dump out bones, and they it adds value to the cup, like it's a super cup, right? So when they say this, they're basically going to, they're trying to pretend they're Egyptians still at some level. And it doesn't say Joseph practices divination. It's just what he's telling the steward to say to people. Um, so he overtook them, verse 6, and he spoke to them these same words, and they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants would do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money that we found in our sacks. How then would we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever your servants it is found, let him die, and we'll also be your slaves. It's really interesting here. The brothers are in it together, and they're saying, we'll die together. And... You don't make stupid vows like that unless you really think you're innocent because that's a stupid vow. So I think it's really interesting how um, in verse 10, they back him off. (laughs) And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and the rest of you shall be blameless. So let's not go to killing people quite yet. So the servant backs it off just a little bit from their self-proclaimed death sentence. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground and opened his sack. They're excited to show that they're innocent because they are honest. They're dealing straight with the Egyptians. So he searched and he began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. I think it's interesting that he starts with the oldest and leaves off with the youngest because the steward knew which bag it was in. So they're trying to create this drama with the brothers by systematically doing that and going through it. Then they tore their clothes. Each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Tearing your clothes, we've seen this before, right? Or have we not? Is this the first time? That's a sign, and it will be all the way up through the New Testament. The Pharisees tear their clothes. Clothes were really valuable. They're part of how you showed your position in society, and the textiles were extremely valuable in these societies. They didn't have machines doing it for them. Um, So when you tear your clothes, you're really trying to show it's all over and, and... I give up, and you're grieving, you're mourning, you're in distress. It's the most extreme way you can show you're you're upset about something. I suppose today it's still the most extreme way that you can show you're upset about something, or you're Hulk Hogan, one of the two. Um, But, and also they don't, even though the steward says you're all blameless, and I'll just take the one who got caught, he catches Benjamin, but notice that each man loads his donkey and returns to the city. They all go back with Benjamin. Why? Because they're tired of destroying their father's spirit. They're not going back home without Benjamin. And as a team, as a family, they're sticking together this time. They are acting differently than they were. And this is kind of an epic conclusion to the story. There's real change of heart with these guys. They're not going to disappoint their dad again. It had to be heart-wrenching to watch their dad grieve for Joseph. And they're not about to go through that one more time. So what are they going to do? They're going to follow. They have the opportunity to leave Benjamin once again for 20 silver slash money, and they don't do it this time. So Judah, verse 14, and his brothers, notice the new title is Judah and his brothers, came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. Before they bowed for food, now they're bowing out of love for Jacob, their brother, 
for repentance. There's a whole change of like character here and they're bowing before Joseph. In verse 15, Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you've done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Obviously, if Joseph has predicted the future, it's possible that he could practice divination. Don't you know that I know things? In other words, how do you think you would get away with this? I'm second in command of Egypt, and I know the future. Why would you steal from me? So he's playing with them. Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we say? What should we speak? Or how should we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Notice that Judah is stepping up. Benjamin's not having to speak for himself. Judah is unconditionally supporting Benjamin. He doesn't believe Benjamin stole. It'd be pretty easy to believe somebody stole if you didn't trust them. But there's a trust here that is different. So they're turning themselves in. They all come with Benjamin. (laughs) He's just going on that bone. This sacrifice of self is impressive as the sons of a wealthy Jacob are willing to give up their lives. These would have been kind of spoiled brat sons of a very wealthy herdsman, right? So the fact that they're willing to go into slavery and give up their lives for their brother um, shows a grit and a character that they did not have before. Verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. As for you, go up in peace to your father. In other words, I believe you. I I only want the one that took the cup. That's Benjamin. So you give me Benjamin, the rest of you can go free. This is your out. You're released. Go home. Take the grain with you. I trust all of you. And Judah came near him and said, I'm going to stop before I read this next part. This next appeal from Judah to the rest of the chapter is the climax of the story. And this is where you start thinking, maybe Joseph's not at the middle of, maybe we're not at the middle of the story sometimes. Maybe we're just players in someone else's story. And I think that's what's going on with Joseph. He's a player in Judah's story. What we're about to read from Judah is the most repentant, straightforward, truthful, heart-filled appeal that we're going to see anywhere in the Bible. Judah's arrived here. At this point, he's a servant leader. He's willing to give up his life for his brother. He's a man of God, and the glory we're going to see here is in his humility. Judah's become the man of God that he was made to be. And he should have done this with Joseph way back at the well, right, when his brothers got rid of him. I think at this point, Judah's dealt with his guilt long enough, and the freedom that he's going to find comes in confession. We were just reading about freedom this morning in Galatians. The freedom is, I'm done with the lies, I'm done with the secrets, I'd rather die than have the evil of sin in my life anymore. So Judah's just going to give it all up and lay it all down on the line and say, no, this is how it is, Mr. Joseph man. But he doesn't know it's Joseph. He's just Mr. Egyptian man. You don't understand. We're not going to leave our brother behind anymore. And this shows a character that Joseph probably hasn't seen in the Egyptians for a long time. So here's what Judah says. Oh, my Lord. Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and don't let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh, like a God. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a child of his old age who is young and his brother is dead. 
and he is left alone with his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so that I might set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad can't leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. 20 years ago, they didn't care if Jacob was upset. They brought him ripped up clothing and said, we think this is what's left of your son. They lied to him and they showed him bloody clothes and made the most gory image they could in their dad's head that was thoughtless towards their dad. But that's not the case now. They're, now they're so concerned for their father that they think this would, this would break him if he lost Benjamin. But you said to your servants, verse 23, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was. When we went up to your, to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord, our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our younger brother is with us, then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, surely he's torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Notice that um, Jacob there said, my wife bore. He doesn't say wives. He had four women that he had had kids with, but there's only one wife. And that shows us a little bit of the heart of Jacob. And it's Judah saying it, which is interesting because it shows us that Judah and maybe the other brothers have come to accept that they were that Benjamin and Joseph are special. They're the ones that they think the blessing is going to go through. And if Benjamin dies, that blessing could be dead too. Um, but there's no animosity now. Judah's not competing with that idea. He's not arguing with it. He's just understanding it as part of the dynamic of their family. He's accepting the conditions that he was given. Verse 30, now therefore, and this is when it gets pretty cool. When I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant came surety, your servant, he's talking about himself, I came as surety for the lad to my father saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame, the sin, forever before before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. This is the moment that we see the reflection of Christ, not in Joseph, but in Judah. Here in the story, Judah lays down his life for his brother. And he's not selling him this time. The sacrificial love is fresh and should hit like a bomb at the end of the book of Genesis. Here we finally have a human being that's willing to give their life up for another. Remember with Cain and Abel, they got a little jealous and Cain just killed Abel? You know, Abraham and Ishmael get into an argument. Ishmael just go away. Uh, Jacob and Esau start getting into it and, and they trick each other and fool each other. But now finally we have a brother that's uh, instead of killing his brother or trying to fool his brother or trying to split from his brother, finally we have a brother that says, I'll give my life for my, for my brother. And I think that's just this part that makes Judah the lion, the lion of Judah. And he's going to be in the line of Messiah at this point. Verse 34, for how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Likewise, in some way, God's tied up in the salvation of the creation of the world. 
There's this idea that God wishes for every human being on earth to be saved. Not one person should be lost. And it grieves our Father in heaven when someone is lost. So this sacrificial love is an indication of salvation. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. So Israel, led by Judah, is now a new people. And through Judah, we get a sacrificial love where one's willing to give up their life for another. And this has been a true kind of growth for Judah throughout. In Genesis 43, um, in this last piece, we saw that the brothers didn't resent Benjamin for getting the extra portions. In 44.9, they're trusting each other in hard times. In 44.13, they stick their necks out for Benjamin when he's accused. In 44.14, they humble themselves and they repent. In 44.29, they show compassion for Jacob and care. Judah's saying, I care about my father. I don't want to hurt him. And in 44.33, what we just read, Judah offers himself as a sacrifice to save Benjamin. This is all Joseph could have hoped for from his brothers. This is the best case scenario that his brothers have changed. They've had a turn of heart. Maybe he was looking for a way to punish them at the beginning by catching them red-handed, selling out Benjamin, and then he could have jumped in and said, aha, I got you. You went after Benjamin just like you went after me, and I'm Joseph, and I'm going to punish you all. Maybe, like Jonah, he was waiting for the lightning bolt to hit Nineveh, and he wanted to get his brothers in that kind of way. But I don't think that was what was in Joseph's heart. So far in this story, we've seen Joseph serving the Lord in every regard. And I think what was in his heart is he was really trying to give his brothers a chance to do it differently. He's giving them a chance to be different. So that's enough for Joseph to lose it again. And in the next chapter, he starts out by crying some more. He loses it completely, as anyone in this moment would probably lose their stuff, is that you would just break down and just be like, this is the most amazing thing in the world. And again, according to what we've seen in Genesis, this is the first time someone's willing to lay down their life for another person, right? Even Abraham was willing to you know, kill Isaac on the altar, but that wasn't laying down his own life for Isaac's life. This is a whole new thing to give, to be substitution or a pro, to give a propitiation for sin and to take that blame upon yourself. What would you do that for if no other reason than love? So at some point, these brothers, especially Judah, have come to love Benjamin as this treasure in their family that they want to take care of. And in that sense, I think even though probably Jacob and Benjamin thought the blessing was going to go through Benjamin, at this point, I think God takes that blessing and says, nope, Judah's my guy, and he was Leah's son, and he's going to be the one that blessing goes through, and the Messiah is going to come through his line. In Jesus' name. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the imprint of Christ that you put on every chapter of the Old Testament. And I just can't get over how the themes are there, the patterns are there, that when Christ came, we had so much more than miracles to recognize our Messiah, that this is what the Messiah was meant to do. Um, Lord, it's barely even hidden. <laughs> when you look at the Hebrew words for it, it is, you know, a son coming from Israel through the line of Judah that will give their life, uh, their, their, their right hand of God um, will be sacrificed to protect um, the sins of the world, Lord. And we just see that message throughout the Old Testament. And we just celebrate the detail with which you've painted this picture for us to see and recognize Messiah. And nothing's changed, Lord. We still can either 
follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. We can give up our lives um, and confess our sins, or we can choose to hold on with a hard heart to those sins that we want to hide and sneak away. But Lord, how can we hide from you? Um, You see everything. You see our hearts. You see our innermost being. And Lord, we want to serve you with everything we have. As we go into this week, Lord, I just pray that you bless us. Help us to be like the brothers of Joseph that have learned and that we learn from our mistakes and we grow from them. Lord, that we put you first like Joseph, that you can't have a conversation with us without hearing about God and Jesus. And Lord, that's going to drive people crazy or it's going to help them to recognize that we've met a brother or sister in Christ. So Lord, we lift you up wholeheartedly with no reservation, Lord, and we celebrate you as the author and the 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 perfecter of our faith, Lord, the 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 writer of world history. And we know that you have a, a pen and a, a story to tell in each of our lives. So we just celebrate that. We look forward to it. Lord, help us to endure. Um, when we're called to uh, endure something, help us to do it. Um, Lord, if we're not supposed to endure it, like we should just get up and go back and get that grain, then tell us to move and not wait. Um, and Lord, when we're supposed to wait, help us to do that too. Speak clearly to us. Lord, we pray for the, the needs. We know that you provide our daily bread, Lord, and we just thank you for that. Um, And we thank you that each day we have enough and help us to be satisfied and that that's sufficient um, until we come face to face to you, Lord, because that's what feeds our souls. That's what we really need. In Jesus name. Amen.